Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And welcome to the Irish Examiner Sports Podcast on the programme this week, Life in the Fast Lane. Nicholas Roach on the challenges of cycling on and off the bike and Northern Lights. We hear about the most northerly game of Gaelic football in GA history. Now on Saturday, two Gaelic football teams will enter the record books when playing a game of Gaelic football in the northern tip of Finland. The European PRO's Brian Clerken. Uh, is uh, on the line. Uh, Brian, you're not in Finland. Uh, you're a bit closer to home, but uh, this is a, an incredibly interesting story about the uh, the spread of GA uh, across the continent of Europe. Very much so. Absolutely unbelievable uh, development and work gone in the last few months and the last few years in general. And uh, the dividends are really paying uh, back in spades. And uh, something like this is just one of the many amazing stories going on in European GEA at the minute. Okay, now this game is being played on uh, Saturday uh, afternoon. Uh, tell us about the two teams involved and, and the distances uh, involved for them. Okay, well, um, first up you've got uh, Helsinki Harps, which are based in the Finnish capital of Helsinki, and uh, they've been existing now since 2010. And um, I suppose their closest neighbours would have been Tallinn in Estonia, who also formed in 2010. But then in late 2012, we got interest from a man called Kahir Sunna, who's a Donegal man, uh, who moved to Ulu, or as they pronounce it, Olu, in northern Finland, about 220 kilometres just south of the Arctic Circle. And um, he had this idea to set up a GEA club there in Oulu uh, to coincide with the Irish Music Festival of Oulu, which is uh, one of the biggest um, Irish music and cultural festivals out in Europe. And uh, then the Oulu GEA club idea was formed. And uh, it's basically only this year, 2013, around the summertime, um, where the whole idea came to fruition and uh, ultimately um, achievement with the the last round of the Nordic um, Championship in Tallinn in Estonia saw the participation of the Ulu, or Olu Irish Elks, the Helsinki Harps and the Tallinn team in Estonia. So a uh, fantastic little mini project there that's uh, really gone from strength to strength. And um, just to give you, you know, a reference, it's 600 kilometers apart. So basically you're talking from Malin to Mizzen and then another quarter on top of that. So it's an absolutely unbelievable story. And to see the commitment and the passion involved, it's uh, mm. really incredible to see. And, you know, the fact that less than 50% of the people are Irish, just it's, it's mind-boggling really at the end of the day. And I suppose as well, too, the other factor we have to take into account is October, the weather is bad enough here in Ireland uh, in the last couple of days. 
I can imagine it must be a lot, lot colder and a lot, lot darker in Finland at the moment. Well, it's it's actually quite funny there um, at the minute because, you know, Olu is just, as I said, south of the Arctic Circle. So they actually have the northern lights there as well, which um, kind of provides a bit of an artificial, I suppose you could call it, lighting system. But ultimately, you know, we, we, we're saying the game is on at 5 p.m. Irish time. It's actually 7 p.m. in um, in Finland, so they're a good two hours ahead of us again. So they're well used to training at night in the dark, and uh, the sports council there in Oulu have been fantastic to the local club there. And when the weather was um, in the depth of winter, they uh, gave them an aircraft hangar facility with an astroturf pitch, which was a, an unbelievable start for a fledgling club. And then they've had access to an outdoor facility with uh, with fantastic um, outdoor lighting as well. So, and then the stadium itself, um, it is of European Champions League or uh, Europa League standard. So the lighting facilities there will be very good as well. So I don't think the darkness is uh, too much to um, to worry the the people and the, the club in Oulu, but. Um, I would say that after this weekend, uh, that will wrap up things for them for the season because pretty much from October until probably late March, things uh, really shut down there because of the winter. What is the attraction of Gaelic football and Gaelic games in general, do you think, amongst the, the greater European and, I suppose, greater global audience? Mm. Well, um, I set up my own club myself personally in, in St. Gallen in Switzerland. And, you know, I've seen local people and non-Irish people take to the games. And, you know, it really is a fantastic, you know, sensation or situation when you see people with wide, big eyes, you know, like the kid on Christmas morning. And uh, they just love how involved you are in the game and how actively participation, you know, you can be and. You know, you're involved in, you know, it's short, intense games most of the time. So basically, there's no hiding place. You use hand-eye coordination. There's an element of physicality without being, like, rugby physical. Then there's also, you know, the actual feeling of teamwork, short in- interlinked passing, that um, that unbelievable feeling of getting your first point or your first goal, and then ultimately becoming part of, you know, the culture and the background of, of Gaelic games. It's like... I use the word, it's like being hooked, and like I use it from the GEA being a drug, but a positive drug. And uh, I know from parents personally, I've heard testimonies that they love how involved their kids are in the game. And the fact that, you know, in soccer, for example, they can always give the star player the ball and he can blitz through the defense, where in GEA or Gaelic football, that the player or the kid is always involved and, you know, if you're a corner forward, that your goal is to get the goals. If you're a midfielder, your goal is to separate defence and attack and link them up together. And then the defender's job is to keep keep out the goals. So, you know, the, the parents are really uh, supportive of it. And then the locals are also very supportive of it because they can actually go from a point zero to a ready-playing position, especially in Europe because they have hockey and Olympic handball and diff- different sports like that that are actually quite conducive to Gaelic football especially. In terms of the facts and figures, Brian, around Europe, 
is it as simple to say that the the upsurge in Gaelic games across the continent has gone hand in hand with the downturn in the Irish economy? Well, in certain ways, yes, but then in other ways, no. And uh, I'll clarify that now by saying that, say, for example, our, one of our greatest success stories in Europe this year was Italy. Now, 12 months ago in Italy, we didn't have any teams. And then within those 12 months, we had uh, four teams pop up in Italy. And uh, two of those teams are completely native, so no Irish at all. And then the other two teams are maybe one or two Irish lads helping organize and facilitate the whole project, but they rely on the help of the locals to uh, ingrain the, the club in the community and make the whole project grow as a whole. And the two Italian native teams are called Rovigo and Padova. And uh, the Rovigo club was the first club formed in Italy. And, you know, this came about when uh, the chairperson of the club, Raffaello Franco is his name, he went to Ireland for his honeymoon in 2010 saw Gaelic football in Croke Park and brought back a ball with him, got his friends going for a kickabout. They used to get together and watch games and then the whole thing spiralled out of control into a fully-fedged club where they hosted their first tournament there in just August gone past. So, you know, in some ways the knowledge of the game really helps, but in other ways we've seen it just pop up, you know, like from nothing, from no base, but ultimately to as much love, as much commitment as any GEA club in the world. And what's the relationship like then with you as an organisation and HQ, Croke Park and uh, the power base that's there? Okay, well, um, we're we're directly under Leinster Council and uh, they've been monumental there for our growth and development over the last 13 years. And then um, Croke Park, we have delegates on Central Council and we also have delegates on the International Federation, which is a newly formed an association um, who are trying to, you know, organise the, the GEA games globally and internationally. And um, you know, it's it's good communication, it's good leadership, but ultimately um, investment in structure, as um, you know, coaching and referees and things like that. Because back when the the club was, or the board was formed. Things were very difficult to get going, but um, nowadays uh, we have our own referees, we have our own coaches, and uh, we run coaching courses and referee courses every every probably two three times a year. And uh, ultimately, it's that investment and structure and and base that we're uh, hoping to push on further for in the future. And finally, what is the next progression? What is the next step? What is the next big goal? for Gaelic Games globally? Well, at, at the minute we have um, 91 active club projects. Now, that's fully established clubs and clubs in development. And we've also got a further 17 seedling ideas. So that brings us up around 108. That's our current number. So my plan would be in the next three years for that to go up around 150 clubs and... Uh, we're currently active in 23 countries, and we also have about 5,000 junior members, so um, juvenile members, and that's mostly based in Brittany and France and in Spain through the language schools, etc. And now my ultimate goal would to to be, you know, to stay active in 
all those 23 countries and those 108 projects that we are currently involved. But ultimately for the association to uh, colour in the gaps. And what I mean by that is that, you know, we've got Oulu in northern Finland. We've got Gibraltar and Seville in uh, southern Spain. We've got Galicia in northwestern Spain. And we've got two clubs now in Russia, in St. Petersburg and Moscow. So what I'd like to see us do is to fill in the middle. And, you know, um, France is probably our biggest area at the minute with um, nearly 20 clubs at the minute. And then uh, we'd like to progress into Germany and, you know, Czech Republic, Poland, Slovakia, places like that, that um, we have activity, but ultimately don't have a base yet. And um, then for the clubs to uh, continue to grow and um, actively seek uh, native involvement and uh, local participation and in really ingrain the clubs um, in their local community. Like we're under no illusions, we're only 13 years old as a board and this is a long-term project, probably maybe a generation or two before I think European GEA will really, you know, reap its rewards in the in the, the greater global GEA um, situation. And the question then, Brian, is will it be feasible in that we have a team representing London in the All-Ireland Senior Football Championship, we have a team representing New York in the All-Ireland Senior Football Championship. How far away are we from having a European representative team at senior championship level? Well, senior championship level, if you were to ask me honestly, I would say it's about 15 years away. And um, it all, as I said, is little uh, baby steps all the way. But um, like even, for example, now on the 12th of October, uh, European GEA has its representative, Guernsey Gales, uh, representing Europe in the Leinster Junior Club Championship. So um, if you'd have asked anybody uh, 13 years ago when the European board was first formed that they would have enough structure in place to play their own 15-a-side competition and ultimately send a club to the Leinster Junior Club Championship, people would have said you were mad because we only had five teams back then. Now we've got um, 81 active clubs and cities, so... Just the progress and the development has been phenomenal and it's truly an honour and a privilege just to be a part of it and, you know, to see these amazing stories happen firsthand. Like, the probably the greatest story of the whole weekend is uh, the story of Yuka Yuhola, who travels 970 kilometres to this game. And he's, his story is very like the Raffaello Franco story. He saw Gaelic Games on, on a holiday in Ireland in 2010 brought it back, built a set of goalposts from drain pipes, bought a set of balls online and got them shipped to him, and then came to train in Helsinki, which is 270 kilometers away from him. So he travels that every Saturday, 270 kilometers there and 270 kilometers back, every week just to train in Gaelic football with Helsinki Harps. So just stories like that that will continue to come from Europe and... uh, it just makes the whole thing so special. It has been an incredible year for Irish cycling and a little earlier this week, Red FM's Joe Harrington caught up with top Irish professional Nicholas Roach to discuss his season so far. It just, uh, you know, it's just, it's just like when you have a president in, in Ireland that gets elected, you just uh, get on with it. 
So um, you know, uh, there's a there's a vote, and you accept what the vote is, uh, regardless of what you think. So I don't think there's any need to to give a proper point of view. That's the way it is now. And um, and to be honest, uh, I'm I'm happy that the page is turning over because over the last six months, it's just about being uh, media coverage, and there's more talk about the UCI election rather than what's going on during the races. So at least now uh, people can focus on racing again. Yeah, like like would that have dominated uh, the, the events you've been in stuff that talk about the presidency, or was it really an issue, or what? No, I mean among cyclists, to be honest, uh, it wasn't the topic we'd talk. We would spend the most time on, but uh, every time you go on an internet site or on Twitter, that's the only yeah. talk or the interest that uh, people had, and uh, not about. Uh, um, I, I'm sure this morning, the, unfortunately, the, the junior women's race in the world didn't get much interest, and people were all on their internet pages waiting to see the results of the of, um, of the vote. So uh, that was a bit of a pity for the for the junior women, for example. But it's been like that over the last uh, six eight months now. So um, mm. at least that that chapter is closed, and um, now uh, it's time to look forward and see uh, what are the changes going to be made. Mm. And um, and concentrate again on uh, on you know on results and on racing. Yeah, do you actually know much about Brian Cookson or have you ever met the guy or anything like that? No, uh, I don't. Um, that's one of the reasons why I can't really comment because uh, yeah. I have uh, I have no idea. I've just been reading like everybody what's going on on the internet, and uh, I've never met him and I don't know anything about him. So. Um, uh, it would be pretty uh, unfair to give any statement, uh, good or bad, because I just like haven't got a clue, to be honest. Mm, uh, it's been a fantastic few weeks for you uh, with the fifth place finish at the Volta Espana. Uh, did, you, did you even get a chance to enjoy that with the Worlds coming up so soon after? No, um, you know, I only got back on the... Um, I suppose I, I did in a, in a, sh- in a brief way. Yeah. Uh, on the Sunday evening in uh, in Madrid, we had a corporate event uh, with Saxo Bank um, uh, guests, and uh, we were able to to enjoy a, a couple of uh, glasses of uh, red wine on a on a terrace in the hotel where we were. So I yeah. I, I would consider that as my kind of um, relaxed time, even though I wasn't in uh, with the family or with the friends. I will do that um, in about two weeks after Lombardy when I'll be just a bit more chilled. Um, unfortunately, like I said, I got back home on the Monday and on the Thursday morning I was already out for the mm. team time trial um, world. So, um, you know, the idea was just trying to stay focused for another two weeks. Two weeks, it was long, but it's also needed, you know, um, yeah. with Lombardy next week as well. And mm. then I will have the whole winter to uh, look back at the what and whatever the results and uh, chill out with some friends. I'm not sure you've had time to reflect on the Vuelta in a lot of detail, but do you feel you could have done a little bit better, or were you very happy with fifth? Or like, do you think that was just about right for the three weeks of riding? No, I think fifth was um, was my right position. Obviously, at some stage, I was dreaming of podium, but that's only fair. Yeah. Um, you know, I was in the position to dream about it, but uh, I also knew that the third week was going to be pretty hard, especially when you ride two Grand Tours. And, um, you know, after riding so hard the first week and uh, trying many things to go for the jersey, all that, I left a lot of energy and I knew that sooner or later I was going to kind of pay it. And um, I never really paid it, but then um, uh, I kind of, you know, just stayed where, where I was and trying to, to it, it was it was difficult to, uh, I could only depend on um, on the riders 
uh, crisis for me to to improve my position in GC. And uh, you know, when you're riding against Valverde, Nibali, and Rodriguez on owner, yeah. um, there was little chance of one of these going in crisis. So I think fifth was my my right spot. Yeah, I saw you tweeting your results down through the years at the Vault, and uh, you said it finally broken into the top five. Uh, like, uh, uh, how dear an achievement is it for you? Uh, it means a lot, even though it's probably stupid because back in 2010 I was sixth, which is only just one yeah. place behind. But uh, sixth is top ten, fifth is top five, and you know sometimes it's just numbers and it feels really stupid. But uh, I was way more satisfied with the way I even rode tactically this Vuelta um, than 2010. Um, 2010, I also had a, a great chance to break into the podium uh, when I was fourth on the eve of the last time trial. And I messed it up, um, you know, I was kind of, wasn't as experienced as now, and I kind of panicked in the time trial, and I lost uh, a minute and a half or something like that to the favourite. And uh, that dropped me down a few places before the last mountain stage, where I eventually made my way up. But um, uh, this time around, I was was just, you know, I was was looking forward, and every day I was trying new things, and it was just a combination of, getting the jersey or jerseys for the award for them, but also the, the stage win and everything. So this was, that was, was a much better satisfaction than back in 2010, even though, like I said, the results was only just one place better. Yeah. Like, it's such a solid ride there and, and a solid ride at the Tour de France as well. Um, are, are you surprised yourself how well your first year at Saxe so Tinkoff has gone? Yeah, I was a bit disappointed with the start of the year. Right. Um, where, uh, you know, I've looked back a few times on it and I've already commented a few times where uh, I was just so excited and uh, willing to do well that I think I I misjudged my, my winter and I came in form way too early in January and February and I had top results in February. But the problem is once we hit the bigger and more important races back in March, I was already uh, lacking a lot of energy. So uh, I paid that by continuing and not changing my race program. So it's kind of things that I have to look back as well, um, you know, where, where sometimes it would be just uh, wiser to skip a race rather than to keep on pushing when the form is down. So um, that's one thing that I have to make sure this winter doesn't happen again. Uh, you know, there's no point of being the champion of the training camp in January. Uh, it's way better uh, to be uh, productive in, in April. So I have to make sure this winter I don't get carried away like last year. But getting the first stage win and holding the red jersey and all of that, it, like, it, like you, you must look back already and see there's such a hugely positive year. Yeah, definitely. You know, um, over the last few years, I've been so close in both. Mm. Um, you know, I was already second in the stage in the Volta in 2008 on the photo finish. I lost to Arviti. Uh, I was second in the stage in the Tour in 2009. And, um, you know, I was also, last year, I missed out on the leader's jersey in uh, Sierra Nevada where I missed out by 12 seconds um, on the red jersey when I was in the breakaway then uh, Katusha chased flat out on the last few kilometers and uh, eventually they caught back uh, most of the time but uh, at some stage I was actually taking the jersey about 3k to go yeah. um, because it was only 30 seconds needed for me to, to take the jersey to from uh, Valverde who had uh, crashed I don't, know, I don't know if you remember that day in the crosswinds mm. Um, so I was pretty disappointed that day that I had missed out on, on the jersey. But also this year um, in the Tour, uh, I was only eight seconds so- short of the yellow jersey on the day of my birthday. So that was also, uh, you know, I was also so close and so far. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then eventually 
Uh, even the, the day the day that I won, uh, I was only eight seconds again from the yellow jersey. So I've been going around it so, for so long, but never actually um, making it. So it was, uh, it was such a relief to to get it on, on that day. Mm. Um, actually, today now looking back to it, I think it was actually better for me. Uh, on, on the day when I won, obviously it was like, oh crap! I have all the jerseys except the one that I really wanted, yeah. uh, because I had the three jerseys except the red one. Yeah. But uh, looking back at it today, it was great to, to pick it up um, four days later in a different circumstance, and uh, you know, uh, it gave me that kind of second boost again. Like you know, I was able to celebrate twice. In other words, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know it was uh, it was thrilling stuff and uh, like everyone back here, I know it was just over the moon for you and stuff like that. Can I just ask you about um, just uh, cycling in, in in the different races this year? Because like, I'm not sure if there's been more crashes this year or is it just because of Twitter and stuff, uh, videos are being put online and we've more access to them. But uh, like in terms of that kind of stuff, like maybe the Giro d'Italia, a lot of tight streets and there was a lot of crashes there and stuff. Maybe the weather played a part. But just in general, have you noticed it being a little bit more dangerous this year? No, I think this year was um, there's been a lot of bad crashes, but I think it's something just like you pointed. It's just the fact that now we have access to all these uh, uh, really quick media, and uh, uh, just uh, one, one crash just gets shared fifty thousand times a day. So yeah. it's just that uh, everybody knows about it, and even if someone crashes training the next minute, the whole uh, cycling community has the, the the info on their mobile phone. So um, yeah. I think this year, no, I, you know, I think last year in the third has been way more crashes than this year. Okay. Um, you know, there's, there's been very few crashes in the Vuelta. Unfortunately, Dan was one of the ones mm. that paid a really high price for his crash. But um, there was fewer crashes this year in the Vuelta. Um, um, I can't really remember the Giro, but for sure I know in Giro the bad weather was definitely a factor for the bad crash. Just like in the tour last year, yeah. uh, we had miserable weather the first week. And that was a big, uh, a big part of um, uh, of responsibility for the for the crashes. Mm. So yeah, globally, I think there's been a lot of crashes over the last two or three years. But uh, this year, more than the other two, I don't think. I think that's kind of roughly stable. I uh, just wanted to quickly ask you about the support as well uh, because I was out at the Tour de France and we were in Mount Ventoux that day up at Irish Corner and all of that. Uh, like, Have you noticed a significant increase this year in the Irish support or maybe a slight increase? Uh, every year has been increasing over the last like, since, since I'm riding the tour back. So back since 2009, yeah. uh, every year I realise it's just more and more Irish flags on the side of the road. Um, it's been it's been a great support from from Ireland. Uh, I'm actually where well, I'm really surprised is uh, how much uh, like when I'm racing in Spain, how much Spaniards actually come on the side of the road with Irish flags, <laughs> uh, which is uh, which is funny how much. Um, um, I think it's just the fact also how much how popular uh, just Ireland as a as a global nation is kind of uh, popular outside of the, of the country as well, you know. Mm. And um, like you, you go up to Longiru and you see all these group, groups of Spaniards with a, a Guinness and leprechaun hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like you know uh, <laughs> they're probably all from Temple Bar or from one of the <laughs> O'Connor sweet shops, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there, there's a huge amount of our support. Uh, and it's great to see also how much um, uh, foreign farm, fans uh, we have who support Ireland globally. Yeah, this was even on Twitter. Like, has, has it been hundred percent positive for, for you? Like, in, in that kind of experience of things, it's never hundred percent positive. You always have people yeah. 
who uh, who criticize you or uh, put in doubt your performances or whatever. There's a, regardless of the numbers or the facts. And like I said, when I won, yeah. I put an internet on SRM uh, all my data, and you could see that I was not even doing six watts per kilo, and there was nothing Superman about that. Mm. Uh, it was just the right circumstances. And uh, but you know, there's a, obviously there's a, um, there's a lot of support globally, and there's a, but there's also like I said, you can't please everyone. Uh, there's always someone who's going to look at you with the wrong eye uh, by jealousy, by uh, misunderstanding or whatever. Mm. Uh, so obviously you get your tweet, which is not the most pleasant one to read. Yeah, do you find it hard not to react? Uh, initially, yes. When I started with Twitter, I was very reactive to a lot of the the, the tweets. Um, now I stepped back from it and I've realized that I can't please anybody, yeah. everybody. And not everybody is going to like me, and they have a perfect right not to like me. And uh, as long as I do my job right and I know what I'm doing is in corresponds to my character and whatever. If you don't like me, you don't like me. That's not my problem anymore. Um, Mm. And I won't get offended. It's your right not to like me. uh, But uh, like I said, uh, globally, I have a lot of uh, support, which is great. And uh, it does make a bit of difference sometimes you know just know that you've so many people backing you up yeah, and uh, like i said now i just kind of step back from those who take the time to criticize me yeah big time um you mentioned you're going to do the giro de lombardi next week uh will you go to beijing no uh beijing was initially uh my race program instead of lombardy i was okay. supposed to have a like a, a week to kind of uh chill out after the world and uh, well, recover more than chill out, actually, uh, and then get ready for, for China. But um, coming out of the Vuelta, I, was, uh, uh, I could feel the form w- was there, but uh, there was not much left in the tank. And uh, I felt that uh, holding the form for another two and a half weeks was, was kind of possible. But uh, pushing it for, for a whole four weeks might have been, uh, been too much. And I didn't want to go to China and have a, a bad race. So I, I was kind of saying, all right, I'd rather just stay focused until the world and push it onwards to Lombardy yeah. and then uh, just close the season there rather than trying to, to struggle to cold form until uh, China and maybe not even perform there. Mm, I just want to look at, look to 2014 very quickly, uh, Nicholas. Uh, the Giro starting in, in Belfast is going to be very, very special. Um, would it be nice if you were a team leader and uh, Daniel Martin was team leader at the start of that? Yeah, that would be great. And, you know, potentially we could even have uh, Philip on Team Sky as well. So uh, 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 there's a great chance of having uh, three hours at the start of of the Giro, which which would be fabulous for for, for the whole three of us. Uh, You know, um, you you don't get many occasions when a Grand Tour starts in your home country. So um, that it would be uh, it would be a fantastic experience. Um, I haven't officially spoken about my program with my team yet, okay. so I'm gonna have to have a chat and see um, if we all agree on that. But uh, you know, hopefully, in the back of my mind, uh, my goal next year will, will go for the for the Giro uh, rather than the, the races later on in the year, like I did over the last few years. Mm, uh, have you actually spoken to Philip since he signed for Sky? No, I well, I, I sent him a text when yeah. I read that he had crashed and broke his collarbone. So yeah. I sent him my my support, and um, you know, uh, I was looking forward to catching up with him this week. And um, I just told him that I'll speak with him in the winter or, um, when things get quiet. 
and um, that that was it. Yeah, yeah, it's an exciting move from. Um, you're coming to Cork next month. Uh, coming to Middleton. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a bit of what's going to be happening? Well, um, last year we we started with a little cycle uh, down in Middleton. This year it's um, it's gone a bit bigger, and we and it was a question and answer. But this year uh, we have a, a whole uh, a whole day event and um, backing up with a with a charity, and um, it's going to be it's going to be a good day. Uh, you know, uh, spending some time with the the, the younger uh, kids in the morning, and then uh, with the the sportives in the afternoon yeah. or early early uh, late morning, sorry, and then um, in the evening is going to be a, a question and answer dinner um, with some uh, uh, probably some some raffles and prize givings and uh, uh, and I'm you know really looking forward to it. It's it's one of the times in the year. Um, where you can actually spend time with your your fans, and I think it's so important to to communicate and to talk with them and to spend that little time. Um, you know, like I said, uh, uh, we have great support during the year, and that having those days is a, is, a, is a way to uh, say thank you to them and to you know uh, keep them all set for next year. Mm, there seems to be kind of a real growth in cycling in Cork. Uh, Eddie Dunbar is out in Florence there now in the World Juniors. Uh, uh, do, do you know there's a passion for it down on Leeside? Yeah, you know, but already when I was cycling back in Ireland, when we'd go down to Cork and Carganshire and uh, uh, race against the uh, famous Paddy O'Brien and all that, yeah. uh, so uh, it was uh, it was already the, the the good thing. And I remember that the races were were pretty exciting at that stage. And um, like like last year, we had a great little turn up, even though that the weather was miserable and mm. it was uh, it was late minute. Um, this year has been really appetised and everything, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be a huge turn up and be a great day. And that's it from the Irish Examiner Sports Podcast. My thanks to our guests this week, to Nicholas Roach and to Brian Clerken. We're back again, same time, same place next week. Hopefully we'll have your company once more for that. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.